Hi there. I wanted to give a quick update since we recorded our episode on Wednesday about the Supreme Court and the coronavirus. So on Thursday, the Supreme Court said it would be closing down to the public until further notice, quote, out of concern for the health and safety of the public and Supreme Court employees. The court said it would be open for official business, but it did not say how this would affect the two-week oral argument session that's scheduled to begin on March 23rd. Now to our episode. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 about the Supreme Court. My name is Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. I'm excited about today's episode. We have a special guest coming on, Adam Cohen. He is a journalist who recently wrote a book called Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-Year Battle for a More Unjust America. You know, it's a a deep dive into like the last 50 years of cases and how he argues um, how the court has basically systematically ruled against the poor um, on a number of fronts. So we're going to be talking about that uh, later on and discussing uh, some of the main points of his book. Before we get to our guest, though, I I wanted to kind of talk about maybe the most topical news item in the country, if not the world right now, which is the coronavirus. So how that affects the Supreme Court, I reached out to the Supreme Court, the the court's um, public information office this morning, just to see whether it was having any effect whatsoever on the court's planned oral arguments later this month, because you've seen, you know, so many organizers of events around the country um, postponing or rescheduling these things that involve like large gatherings of people. I would imagine court oral arguments in which you have, you know, hundreds of people sometimes packed into a small room, that could be potentially a, 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 you know, a vulnerability point. Um, but the court right now says it's monitoring local and national responses and is coordinating with the administrative office of U.S. courts. So they don't have an answer for us just yet, but uh, we'll definitely update our listeners uh, whenever we hear back anything else. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is a kind of a day-to-day, even hour-to-hour, uh, you know, wait-and-see kind of thing. I know here we've we've lysoled our microphones and we're all kind of taking extra precautions, just cleaning and washing our hands. And I think the justices also are probably going to be taking precautions, too. I mean, they have such busy lifestyles, flying all over the country, accepting awards, meeting people. Um, and I think there's it's already been reported that Justices Sonia, Sonia Sotomayor and Breyer um, have either canceled or the organizers have canceled events where they were scheduled to appear. So, yeah, it's a it's a daily situation. And, and we'll update um, our listeners with any other information we get. Now, before we get into our main segment with Adam, uh, we have a bit of news from the Supreme Court this week. That's right. The Supreme Court on Wednesday decided to allow the Trump administration to continue implementing its remain in Mexico policy. Um, That's the policy whereby the Department of Homeland Security, it returns certain migrants who cross the southwest border, uh, some of whom are seeking asylum, um, just but without authorization, um, and and forces them to remain in Mexico during their removal proceedings. Um, I think the government has returned around uh, almost 60,000 migrants under the policy, but it was um, enjoined. There was an injunction against against it issued by a California federal judge nationwide. So the Supreme Court on Wednesday decided to stay that injunction, with the exception of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who, dis- who said she wouldn't have voted to grant the stay. But this is just another example of you know a, a, an injunction uh, being placed against a controversial Trump policy, most having to do with immigration, whereby the Supreme Court later jumps in and, and lifts it. 
Now, that was definitely, I think, the the top news from the court this week. But there was also a second bit of news. Um, and this one requires a little bit of backstory. So I, I know we've talked about the D.C. sniper case uh, before. Um, and that case actually ended up getting mooted a few weeks back uh, when Virginia passed a law that um, – that made it possible to give parole to juveniles who'd been sentenced to life, which was the issue with the D.C. sniper case that we talked about. But the court, um, after having that case mooted, has decided to take up another case involving juveniles who have been sentenced to life without parole. Yeah, the question in Jones versus Mississippi is about how much consideration a judge has to give to a sentence of uh, a life in prison without the possibility of parole for a juvenile. So specifically, the question is whether they have to make a finding that that juvenile is permanently incorrigible before handing down a life sentence under the Eighth Amendment. This is a really interesting one. The, the circuits are pretty divided on this. Um, but it's one that you know was left open by the, the mooted um, DC sniper case. So we'll definitely be watching it going forward. now is Adam Cohen, journalist and author of the recently released book, Supreme Inequality. Welcome, Adam. Oh, good to be here. Adam, in the book, you take a deep look at the last 50 years of cases from the Supreme Court, um, and you make an argument that the court, as it has gotten more conservative, um, has been basically ruling against the poor on a number of fronts from, you know, education and labor law to campaign finance and criminal justice. What led you to write this book? Well, a lot of things. Um, I was myself a poverty lawyer. Um, after graduating from law school, I uh, worked for the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama, and I worked at the National Office of the ACLU doing race and poverty work. So it's definitely a world I inhabited. I also, as a journalist, wrote about the Supreme Court for the New York Times editorial page and for Time magazine. So all these ideas were swirling around in my mind. Um, but actually, the book I wrote before this was a book called Imbeciles, um, uh, which was about a case from 1927 where the Supreme Court upheld eugenic sterilization. And that book was really about how in that very important case, the court said that um, the state of Virginia could sterilize a poor woman uh, because her genes were, quote, bad. Um, and uh, a lot of that book was about how the court was ruling on behalf of the powerful against the weak. And I really thought as a follow-up, why not talk about the fact that our modern Supreme Court also systematically rules for the powerful against the weak. And as I looked into it, this 15 year time, 50, 50 year time frame became really the, I think, the right way in which to tell that story. Adam, before we get into um, some of the discussion around how the Supreme Court in your eyes has made the, the country more unequal, I just want to kind of contextualize the book and talk about the makeup of the court over the last 50 years. So the courts had a conservative majority now for close to a half century, if not a half century. And I think a lot of that you talk about is just a mix of, you know, politicking and maybe sometimes luck. Um, about certain vacancies. Um, so most people know about one important episode in 2016 when uh, Republicans carried out the blockade of Merrick Garland. But I think another one you mentioned is equally important, um, the uh, failed nomination of Abe Fortas to become the chief justice in the, in the, uh, during the Johnson administration. Can you kind of set that up and, and basically why that was so important 
for the trajectory of the Supreme Court over the ensuing decades? Yes, and that, that is in fact exactly why the 50-year time frame makes so much sense. So we had actually a liberal uh, Supreme Court briefly in American history, the Warren Court of the 1950s and 60s. They're the court that handed down Brown v. Board of Education and famous rulings like Miranda, which said you had the right to, uh, you had to be told you had the right to remain silent before the police questioned you, uh, Gideon v. Wainwright, the right to a lawyer for poor criminal defendants, a lot of other rulings like that. They were ruling for the poor. Nixon's elected in 1968, and he wants to turn this liberal court into a conservative court. And he has to change the court quite a bit because there's a pretty solid liberal majority. He gets the chance to do that. He appoints four justices in three years. And one of those seats that was critical to creating the conservative majority is, you're correct, the sort of 50-year-ago analog to the Merrick Garland case, and it's Abe Fortas. So Abe Fortas was a justice on the court when Warren, the liberal chief justice, tells uh, President Lyndon Johnson that he's going to retire, he says to Johnson, you know, please replace me with a liberal. Johnson decides to elevate Abe Fortas, who was an old friend and uh, supporter of his, um, from associate justice of the Supreme Court to chief justice. Then as you alluded to, um, uh, that confirmation was rejected by the Supreme Court. Abe Fortas remains on the court in his seat. But when Nixon comes in, he sees that Fortas has been weakened by that rejection by the Senate. And there's also a little mini scandal that Fortas had been working as a consultant while he was on the court for a progressive foundation that had been started by a financier named Wolfson. So um, Nixon sees this as an opportunity, even though Fortas did nothing wrong, did not violate any law, did not violate any court rules. Nixon gets his Justice Department to threaten and blackmail Fortas to say that they will prosecute him for his ties to the foundation, that they will prosecute his wife for something she had been investigated of and cleared of earlier um, and possibly put them both in jail. Nixon's dirty tricks, which were carried out by John John Mitchell, his attorney general, who himself later went to jail as part of the Watergate scandal, they worked. And Fortas was intimidated, stepped down, and Nixon got an extra seat on the court. That liberal seat was uh, became a conservative seat. And it became critically important because in the next few years, there were some incredibly important rulings for poor people, for school children, and other you know uh, disadvantaged groups that came out five to four. So that theft of the Fortas seat was crucial. You make the argument that the poor should be a protected class. Can you talk our listeners through the argument for that and and how, you know, it came close with the Warren Court? Yeah. So under the Constitution, under the Equal Protection Clause, there is this idea of protected classes, um, a category which means that um, it's a group that is disadvantaged, um, is a minority, um, has trouble uh, protecting its own rights through the political process. Um, the idea was invented in 1937. The court has added a number of groups to that category. You know, racial minorities are suspect classifications, religious minorities, non-citizens. So in the 60s, when the court actually, that Warren court really cared about poor people, they were inching towards maybe declaring the poor to be a suspect class. Uh, they never quite got there. And before they could finally decide uh, uh, the, the case, um, you know, Nixon takes over the court and the, the new Burger court rejects it. If the court had done that, it would have given poverty lawyers a powerful tool to strike down a variety of laws and rules and government policies that really do disadvantage poor people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated because we can see a racially discriminating, discriminatory law 
more easily maybe than a law that discriminates against the poor because in some ways many almost any government action discriminates against the poor right if you charge two dollars to get on the bus that's going to be harder for a poor person to pay than a rich person but I think there could have been a really sophisticated jurisprudence that emerged that actually protected poor people from some of the worst things the government has been doing to them yeah it's really interesting you you, you kind of discussed that hypothetical world where maybe the Warren court continues its its a trajectory uh, ruling in favor of, uh, you know, p- expanding poor people's rights. I think uh, uh, finding an affirmative right to subsistence in the Constitution is another one that was on the cutting edge, but was kind of waylaid um, after uh, Chief Justice Berger came to office. I want to focus on uh, one case in the actual world that, that we've lived in, uh, where uh, you, you call it the unmistakable turning point for poor people in American law, and that's the case Dandridge versus Williams. Why was that one so important? And can you just kind of lay out the facts of that case? Yeah, sure. And, you know, the important context here is that this was the Warren court had really been recognizing a lot of rights for poor people. They had been, you know, that right to a, a lawyer if you're accused of a crime. They struck down the poll tax, which was stopping poor people from voting. They it had an incredible decision, um, which was really the high watermark of poverty law, Goldberg versus Kelly, where the Supreme Court ruled that under the due process, anyone who's on welfare anywhere in the country has a right to a formal hearing before their welfare is taken away from them by the government. And that was critical because people were losing their welfare benefits all the time because of bureaucratic errors or a a caseworker who just was like mean or didn't like them. This was a major victory, that Goldberg v. Kelly case. But then just two weeks later, the case you mentioned, uh, Dandridge v. Williams. And in that case, um, uh, uh, a widow with eight children was, you know, getting benefits from uh, the state of Maryland and living well below the poverty line because welfare benefits, you know, were just incredibly, uh, 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 you know, insufficient to live on. But so she's living well below the poverty line. Then Maryland passes a law saying, you know, we're going to cap welfare benefits so that if you have more than four children, you're going to get the same number of children, the same benefits as if you had just four. So she has eight children. Suddenly she's not getting benefits for four of them. And, you know, this isn't like she was having extra children while she was on welfare. She was not on welfare when she and her husband created this large family. But suddenly, you know, her welfare benefits are going to go down even more. There was a really good argument that this violated equal protection because it was not treating large families fairly and equally. And it was saying to those last four children, you don't get any benefits at all. The Supreme Court rules five to four against her. um, And it's really because Abe Fortas was, you know, driven off the court and he would have been the fifth vote to uh, rule in her favor. And the court not only did that, um, but they also said in really striking language, we're really washing our hands of the problems of welfare and welfare recipients. And it's just, we're going to leave that up to government. And this has had really major impacts, including the fact that we now have a lot of states have family caps uh, around the country that really force a lot of families currently on welfare to live very deeply in poverty. But even more than that, it really signaled the court no longer cares about poor people. And that's something that carried on for decades afterwards. Jumping back to kind of the broader look you take at the court, um, a thread that really popped out to me, I think, was the issue of economic diversity on the bench. You know, it's an issue that doesn't get a ton of limelight when we talk about diversity issues in the law, but I know law schools and some bigger law firms are thinking about that. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your findings about how the economic diversity of the court has impacted its rulings? Sure. Um, You know, I was struck when I was reading about this Warren court that I had a lot of admiration for, and particularly the way in which they approached problems of poverty and poor people, by the fact that uh, the the members of the Warren court majority all grew up in poverty or near poverty. So Earl Warren, uh, who became governor of California, he actually grew up in a family where his father had a very low-paying job for the California Railroad. Um, uh, Abe Fortas, who we spoke about, grew up in a poor immigrant family in Tennessee, and uh, he walked to school uh, because he couldn't afford the car fare. Um, and uh, other members of the court as well um, uh, grew up in you know single-family homes and poverty. I think it absolutely affected how they viewed the problems of poor people. Now, it's never a one-to-one correlation, and people always say, you know, Clarence Thomas grew up in poverty. Clarence in Pim- Thomas. Yeah, Pimpoy, yeah. Georgia. But he's sort of the exception that proves the rule, because I think a lot of his anger comes from rebelling so much against that, and the really horrible things he said about his sister being on welfare when in fact her story is very complicated. But but I think when you look at someone like Sonia Sotomayor, who grew up um, not far from where we are right now in uh, the in the Bronx in the Soundview housing projects, I think she carries her history as uh, someone who grew up in a housing project, single mother, you know, uh, childhood diabetes and had to inject herself as a child. I think she uh, developed an empathy there. And, um, and most of the other members of the court have led very privileged lives. I mean, they all really went to Yale or Harvard Law school. Nothing wrong with that. I went to Harvard. But I think that they lived in a sort of bubble for the most part. And I think it comes across in their jurisprudence. And it's interesting that the Dandridge decision that we talked about was written by a Justice Potter Stewart, who, if you look up his resume, it's about as far from poor people as you can imagine. Grew up in uh, you know rich life and went to Yale and was in Skull and Bones, the secret society, went to Yale Law School and Oxford and you know Wall Street law firms, on and on and on. And the idea that he's deciding, you know, how poor people should live on welfare, I just think it really, you know, didn't give poor people a fair chance. Yeah, and just turning to the modern Supreme Court, I mean, um, with the kind of ideological purity tests that we've seen, um, you know, through the influence of outside groups like the Federalist Society or what have you, you know, you have a lot of elite credentialed lawyers that that come from, um, you know, similar uh, rarefied backgrounds, but just just turning to its actual approach to some of these cases, do you think that the the court has gotten even farther away from the Warren court in the in the modern Roberts court era, and 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 you know potentially we could uh, see an expanding of the court's conservative majority in the years to come, depending on what happens to the election, and, and what do you think? W- what do you think that tra- trajectory would look like? Yes, I, I think that they really have. And, you know, there's some statistical uh, <clears throat> evidence to support this. You know, there was a study done a few years ago showing that the two most pro-business justices to serve on the court since, I think, 1946 on the modern court are Alito and Roberts, just in the percentage of times they rule for corporations. So there's there's data to support it. But there's also, if you look at their actual rulings, um, and, you know, one case that I, I talk a lot about in the book is the Obamacare decision, where, you know, the, the coverage of that case was all isn't it amazing that Chief Justice Roberts ends up voting with the liberals and upholding Obamacare? Yay, you know, a great liberal victory. But what there was much less attention to is really for no good reason, the court went out of its way to strike down the Medicaid expansion part of the law, which was Congress saying that if states wanted to remain in the Medicaid program, they had to extend the Medicaid uh, eligibility to uh, millions of more very poor people. So this was a right that poor people won in Congress, signed by the president, and the court really, I think, 
government makes up an idea, this spending clause argument, to take that away from them. And, you know, there was a meanness to that and an idea that, okay, we'll take care of the middle class and, you know, some of the poor, but we're really going to take this thing away from the poorest of the poor. And I see that in other decisions as well. There's just, uh, there's a harder edge to the way in which they're dealing with these cases. Adam, you note that um, as the court has gotten more conservative, that lawyers spearheading anti-poverty litigation have started avoiding the courts. Um, Are there any key cases, though, that you're watching right now? Um, Well, I mean, I think the case we're all really looking at is the fact that Obamacare is once again before the court. And, you know, um, it was it it really dodged a bullet the last time. So um, I think that, you know, if 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 you said, well, Roberts joined the liberals last time, he'll probably do it again. Well, we really don't know. And we also don't know exactly what the composition of the court will be like. So there's that's one for sure. Um, And, you know, there also are cases like, you know, abortion rights, which is, you know, in some ways not a poverty issue, but in many ways is very much a poverty issue. But I think the larger context also is with this election coming up. Um, if uh, President Trump is reelected, um, it's quite likely he'll get one, maybe even two appointments in a second term. And that would take a, a very conservative court and, you know, perhaps shoot it even farther to the right. And then a lot more becomes up for grabs. Um, and in, in an oral argument uh, not long ago, uh, uh, Justice Breyer said that, you know, we know what's really at issue in this case. It's the, it's the New Deal. This is an attack on the New Deal. And that really resonates because if there's an even more conservative majority in the next few years, they may begin to pick away using things like the Commerce Clause and, and, and other doctrines, begin picking away at the whole edifice of the social welfare state that we know. So I think that's what people are really concerned about is what could happen, say, in the next four years. Adam, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking us through the extensive reporting that you did for this book. It was my pleasure. I think that'll do it for us today. Uh, We'll be back next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Yeah, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.